1: This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you are listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. Last week, I told you I ain't shit. I'm telling y'all this week, y'all ain't shit. I taped last week's episode with three glasses of wine, and all the responses have been, oh my God, you have to have three glasses of wine every episode. Look, y'all trying to turn me into a damn lush. I usually get up every day no later than seven. After I taped that podcast last week with all that wine, I didn't get up till 1130. That's 230 on the East Coast where most of my business is done. Y'all... Had me miss had me missing more than half a work day. Now at twenty something, I could go out, drink all night, stumble into the house at four o'clock, get to work. I mean, I'm supposed to be there at nine. I'd make it by like nine thirty at the latest. I can't do that no more. That was that was two decades ago. Today I'm drinking water, so I have some crazy shit to say, but it's gonna be sober. I can't be fucking around with y'all, turning into a lush at forty one. Like she developed a drinking problem because of the podcast? The story just don't sound right. It don't add up. But thank you very much for listening. I saw the back end numbers spike and I was like, good God. Thank you. We have some more shenanigans to discuss this week and that interview that I was telling you about. Remember last week I said we were going to have an interview, but then there was so much to talk about with the Jacksons that I was just like, this is running long. So I'll save the interview. The interview was with Sister Soldier. She currently has the New York Times bestseller for her latest book, Life After Death. It is the sequel to The Coldest Winter Ever. So I got her on the phone. She's in the Middle East. She's working on her next novel. And she recently finished the screenplay for The Coldest Winter Ever, which is with the studio. So we'll get to that in a little bit. But first, I want to talk about some black excellence. Ain't been a lot of excellence lately. I mean, we got this thing ratchet and respectable, but it's been a lot of ratchet lately. Between Governor Cuomo and T.I. and and Mr. Jackson. I was like, is anybody respectable these days? There's a few left. Some folks are still out here acting right. Kim Janey. She's the first black mayor of Boston. In fact, she's the first non-white male mayor. When I heard Boston had a black woman for a mayor, I was like, Boston? Boston? I mean, they have black people. I mean, like, New Edition comes from there. There are black people in Boston, but not really as many as you would think. There was this old joke. I can't remember who said it. The joke was, Boston is to white people what Atlanta is to black people. And I was like, yep, accurate. They have beautiful architecture. Beautiful museums. One of my favorite museums. Gardner? Gardner? Really great museum. A personal art collection in... They call it a cottage. I think it's probably like twenty, thirty thousand 30,000 square feet with this gorgeous courtyard. Oh, my God. But they have um, one of my favorite painters is John Singer Sargent. Keep in mind, I grew up in D.C. Going to the Smithsonian as my local art museum. So I'm a little skewed sometimes. And this museum in Boston has my favorite piece. Like, I literally went to Boston to see this painting in person. El Halejo. L E L. J-A-L-E-O. It's a really beautiful painting, Um, but it's in this museum. So I went to Boston to go to this museum to sit there to see this painting in person and, like, cry the whole nine yards. It's just so beautiful. Yeah, Boston, Atlanta for white people. So I don't know how Kim Janey pulled this off. She must be a bad chick. I got to go look up some more information on her. But congratulations to Kim Janey. One of our faves, Issa Rae. She has a new partnership with Warner Media. It will give HBO, HBO Max, and Warner Brothers exclusive rights to whatever Sister Issa is working on. It's also a first-look film deal that includes Warner Brothers, New Line Cinema, and again, HBO Max. It's a rumored $40 million over five years, which I was like, girl, you better get your coins. You better get your coins, Sister Issa. I'm so happy for her. I remember working at Essence and the young woman who sat next to me, Naima, she was an editorial assistant at the time, and, and she's gone on to do amazing things in film in Oakland. That's my boo. I love her. But Naima used to watch episodes of Awkward Black Girl on YouTube, and sometimes she didn't have her headphones on, which all of this is part of the job. I don't know what episode it was, but she didn't have the headphones on. And I overheard something and like I leaned over the cubicle and was like, what are you watching? And she was like, oh, there's this show, Awkward Black Girl, this girl, Issa Rae. And I was like, oh, okay." And then that's how I found out about, you know, Awkward Black Girl and Issa and, you know, became like a devotee of of all things Issa Rae. I remember sis from YouTube, like millions of other people. Like, she gave us great content that we watched in droves, and she's just gone up and up and up and up. I'm so happy for her. She is living, I think, every creative's dream. I also read, and this was in Variety, that her production company, Hooray, they have 15 projects in various stages of development with Warner Media. So, there's a lot of content coming down the pipeline. I know the upcoming season of Insecure, the fifth season, Is the final one, but there's more to come when Insecure goes on to glory. So good for her. Jamie Foxx, he's also having an amazing week. He did a deal with Viacom CBS. He and his producing partner, Datari Turner. Do you follow Datari Turner on um on social media? I mean, he's a a great like producer, clearly, but, but he's also like fine as fuck. Jesus. But Fox and his producing partner, Turner, have signed a deal to develop and executive produce movies for the MTV Entertainment Group portfolio. Now, I looked up trying to see like how much that deal was worth. I know it's good money because Jamie Foxx don't come cheap, but they are focused on making films for and by black folk and people of color with an emphasis on diverse storytelling. I trust Jamie with that. He also just won an NAACP award for his performance in Just Mercy, which was on Warner Brothers. I guess Warner Brothers really likes black people right now. Okay. I also read somewhere he's playing Mike Tyson in a new limited series. Read somewhere. I read it in Variety. The series is simply titled Tyson. It doesn't have a network or streaming service just yet, but... Antoine Fuqua is on board to direct and executive produce. And so is Martin Scorsese. So it'll be streaming somewhere big. Given, you know, Jamie Foxx, Antoine Fuqua, and Martin Scorsese. I just want to see it. I think Jamie Foxx would do an amazing Mike Tyson. Jamie Foxx can act his ass off. I love him. I know people who know him and they're like, actually, he's a really nice guy. Which I love to hear, because sometimes you'd be like, oh my god, I love so-and-so. And they'd be like, yeah, fuck them, they're horrible. I have that story about, mm, never mind, we're not going to be messy today. See? That's why y'all like me to have that three glasses of wine. Because the three glasses of wine, I would have told the story. I still got to work in this town, goddammit. Last but certainly not least, FX announced that Snowfall is being picked up for a fifth season. Snowfall is currently my favorite show on television. It is wild right now. I'm absolutely convinced that one of my favorite characters is not going to make it through the season. There's no way that Unc, the Daddy, Man Boy, and Leon, one of the four is not making it through this season. At least two of the four are gone if, it goes into, if Snowfall goes into a fifth season. Ugh, my nerves. My nerves are so bad watching that damn show. Leon picked up a whole damn table last night and I was like, bruh, I feel how you feel. We need to talk about the shit show that are the Jacksons that are consuming the Internet right now. Last week, we spoke about Derek Jackson, relationship expert, who who was outed as <laughs> I almost called him an infidel, who was outed for repeated infidelity during his four year marriage, 12 year relationship with his wife, Tasha Kay, who again, Tasha Kay, I love you. I am a heathen, Tasha K. Don't come for me. Folks are fine with a good heathen. It's it's when you start talking one way and living another way, people don't like that. People can't tolerate that. But if you just get up and be like, look, I'm a goddamn heathen. I'm full of shit. I'd be acting a fool. I'm messy. I'm petty. People be like, well, you know, let God work on you. I read that this whole thing with Derrick Jackson started because Tasha asked for an interview and he declined. After he declined, he did some video about her and then she started digging in his shit. I don't know how true that is. And I was like, see, that's why I'd be like, Tasha K, girl, I ain't got no problems with you. So ain't no need for you to go digging in my shit, Tasha K. That's not the point. The point is, um, since Tasha K, she don't spill no tea. They they drink wine over there. She calls her audience the winos. But ever since Tasha K came out with this information, this first round of information, Derek Jackson released a video with his wife. We talked about that last week. And there's been a series of videos. The the Jacksons, both of them, they are out here looking like full clowns on the daily circus that is the internet. Some folks get real caught up in in the non-reality reality that is social media. And I feel like that's what's happening to the Jacksons right now. Sir, Mr. Jackson after being outed for cheating on his wife multiple times and then being forced to publicly apologize in the, in the third person, which was weird. He's now doing split screen videos of his current self talking to his former self when he was previously giving advice to women about men who cheat. And he's talking to himself in the third person. And I'm like, what are you doing? He's also hard body pushing some new book about healing and marriage. And I'm like, you know, people do need books about healing and marriage, but like, can you go heal first? Because you're not healed, clearly. Your wife is out here looking fucking nuts. And I'm not just talking about the bonnet and no brassiere. Like, she's a mess, as most women would be in these circumstances. And I know that, like, you know, every major media platform, especially black media platform, like the Griot's talking about him, Essence talking about him, very smart brothers. Damon wrote something about him and was like, you know, shutting the fuck up is actually an option. And I was like, yo, this is why me and Dame are friends. Panama said about the same thing and was like, yo, like these social media accounts like can someone disable their account can can they put them in facebook jail like save them from themselves and i was like this is why i love both of y'all i've known both of them for like a decade but this is why i love y'all this is why we're friends y'all got good sense but he's hawking this book about healing when he and his wife are very 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 clearly unhealed i'm like y'all saying y'all good you, you tried to cut off each other's circulation on video. You said that you're good. You said that you moved on. Your actions say otherwise. So on top of the shenanigans from last week, right? Tasha Kay, last night, Wednesday night. Tasha Kay has a new interview with a new mistress who got receipts from earlier this month of Mr. Jackson talking about, like, it's not what it seems. Be patient. I'm coming, up, I'm coming up to your job. I have to see you. Let's talk about this. This woman says she was pregnant with his baby. She had an abortion. What? What? I don't know if it's her or one of the other mistresses. There's at least three that have come forward at this point. One of the other mistresses posted some screenshots of videos he did. And she was like, yeah, he's sitting in his car outside my house while he's giving y'all dating and relationship advice. Nigga, what? Natasha said the woman had more to share, but Mr. Jackson's attorneys had hit the lady with a gag order, which I was like, "Eh, is that accurate? Maybe a cease and desist because you need a judge for a gag order. And if he hit her with an NDA, he probably have to pay her to sign it. I went through a gag order situation. Redacted thought I was going to get on the Internet and blast him and tell what he did, which I told him I wouldn't do. He has children. I don't want his children to know that about their father. But yeah, I was like, I'm not really sure. Like she said there was a gag order, but I was like, that doesn't really seem right to me. Maybe that was a turn of phrase. Because Tasha been consistent with her information. Can a lawyer explain that to me? I know there's lawyers listening because there are neurosurgeons listening. It's also members of Congress listening, which I was like, really? Apparently a lot of people really like Ratchet and Respectable. I would say who knew, but like, you know, I started the podcast because I thought there might be many who shared my duality. So if there's an attorney that can explain like how a gag order works, just slide my DMs and let me know what that process is because I'm just curious. And then there's Mrs. Jackson. She has released a series of videos defending her, her appearance, defending her man. Her husband, defending her marriage and her choice to stay within it, which, you know, is her choice, which is her choice. I feel so bad for her. I feel really, really bad for her. Her husband is a whole whore. But Mrs. Jackson doesn't want to leave her marriage. She doesn't want to leave her husband, which, you know, is complicated. The person you took vows with, the person you've been with, I think since she was a teenager, This person who has pledged to love and protect and provide and cover you has also now betrayed you multiple times. It's a national news story at this point. Like the person you would usually run to when you are in crisis is the person that has caused the crisis. It's it's very complicated, which is why I feel so bad for her. They have kids together, at least one kid. She loves him. As she should, it's her husband, even if he goes and does dumb shit. Like, it's not like just love dissolves in a day. But I also wanna tell sis, like, you gotta love yourself too. A lot of people get caught up in their feelings. Remember Ricky Lake? When I was in college, Ricky Lake and Jerry Springer were hugely, hugely popular. And it was this running joke. About these women who would come on Springer and go on Ricky Lake. And these men would be like Mr. Jackson. They would be whole hoes. And Ricky and Jerry would always ask the women, like, why do you put up with this? Like, he's sleeping with your best friend and your sister and your mother. And he hit on your daughter. Why are you with this man? And the women would always be like, because I love him. And I remember even being like... 19 and 20 years old and looking at those women and just being like, good Lord, if I ever get so caught up in a man who I'm just so in love with, if somebody asks me, why are you there? Even if it's because I love him, I will never say that shit out loud. I'll just say, because I want to be here. I'll just say, because my self-esteem is low and I don't think I can do better, which is also sad, but it sounds less pathetic than, because I love him. Love yourself, too. Love yourself, too. It's equally as important as loving someone else. And in fact, I'm not really quite sure you can fully love someone else when you don't love yourself. And in fairness to Mrs. Jackson, you know, a lot of women stay with men who cheat, broke men who cheat, ugly men who cheat. But I also think it's worth noting that a lot of women pack up the cat and the house and get the fuck out. Like we always talk about like, well, you know, women stay, women stay, women forgive. Yeah, a lot of women don't stay and a lot of women forgive and leave. 70% of divorces are initiated by women. It's a lot of women who say, fuck this shit. I deserve better. I'm out. We don't really talk about them too often. We like to encourage women to stay. I saw some meme recently that was like, his wife is a strong Christian woman for standing by her man, something like that. And I was like, When have you ever seen a meme or anything praising a man for staying with a woman who cheated? Like, when have you ever seen a man sitting there holding his wife's hand when she sits there confessing to cheating on him? A couple people brought up Will and Jada on the Red Table Talk. Will showed up looking Either like he cried his eyes out all the night before and the morning of or high as shit. Maybe both. But Will didn't sit there looking like a loving, adoring husband giving Jada absolution for her actions. Because Jada tried to sit up there and been like, you know, I was involved as like a 40 some odd year old woman in an entanglement with like a 25 year old. And Will challenged her and was like, an entanglement? What's that? What are you referring to? An entanglement. Oh, is that what we're calling it? He didn't absolve her. He, he got up there. Will was like, nah, we were separated. I was done with you. I had no plans to get back with you. You know, that's not the same as, as what so many of these wives do when they get up here with these ministers and these politicians who are their husbands who have cheated on them. But Mrs. Jackson, the series of videos, And I couldn't get through them. They're so damn sad. I was being facetious last week about her appearance on the video. And I was like, you know, sis was probably in the war room praying for her damn husband to gain some common sense and control his dick. But I was joking she was in the war room. But I was like, nah, sis, really be on that war room shit. The first video she did, she was responding to the public who was talking about her appearance and, and and people who were saying that she should leave her marriage and criticizing her husband, who is a, a great orator. And I was like, yeah, I mean, he uses the king's English and, and forms a decent sentence. But an orator? See, there's some delusions of grandeur going on here, too. But she got on this video and she was like, you know, y'all are saying all these things, but I just want you to know no weapons formed against me shall prosper. Honey, sis. The weapon is your husband's dick that he keeps sticking in every open hole. It's not the goddamn people on the internet. The internet can be a horrible, terrible, judgmental place. This is one of the few times when everyone is trying to come together to save this woman. 95% of us are aligned. You in danger, girl. You need to go. No weapons formed against me will prosper. Your husband is the weapon that's keeping you from prospering, sis. It's not the other women. It's not the naysayers. It's not Tasha Kay. I mean, she put the business out there. But if he wasn't cheating, there wouldn't be no cheating story to tell. Sis, I know you want to stay in your marriage. I know you're trying to find ways to justify your decision and deal with the trauma, the weapon that your husband has brought into your marriage that is keeping it from prospering. You're trying to find a way to be there. You're trying to find something to cling to, to help you make sense of all the crazy shit that you are in because of your husband's behavior. And you turn to religion, it seems. Because there was another video, which I was like, girl. She had on a bonnet and she had on a camouflage shirt. And she did this video. What did she call it? She said her hat was, what did she call it? She said her hat was a helmet of salvation. I was like, sis, sis.
3: You see a bonnet. I see the helmet of salvation. You see an army green shirt. I see the breastplate of righteousness.
2: No, sis, no. You picked up some shit from the army surplus store. You not at war. It's a beret that looks like a bonnet and a thermal t-shirt, sis. Sometimes folks like to think Candace Bimbo talked about this on her page. Sometimes folks think that they're experiencing a spiritual war. There's some persecution happening and, and they gotta fight this battle and win favor with God. No. Sometimes you just did some dumb shit and it catches up with them. And you have to pay what Lauren Hill once called the demands of bad decisions. That's it. You're not being persecuted. Your husband's wayward dick has been in too much random pussy. And now he's paying the consequences for the dumb shit he did. It ain't spiritual warfare. God ain't persecuting you. Your husband did some dumb shit. Fucked up your lives and fucked up your marriage. And I understand the desire to cling to religion when you are in a bad place. I was on here last week talking about marching up and down hills. Listening to gospel music nonstop. On the treadmill, crying at the gym. Listening to gospel music nonstop. I get it. There's comfort and healing and turning to religion. But when you take it that extra step and you start using religion to justify dumb shit, you are trying to put God in an ungodly place. God ain't make your husband's dick go in them women. That clown car of women. My God, how many women are going to come forward? It's only been a week. That ain't got nothing to do with God. And we've seen versions of this before, just not to this extreme. When Reverend Gray, who was the Internet's favorite fuckboy before Mr. Jackson shit popped off. When Mr. Gray was going through his first infidelity scandal that the public knew about. Mrs. Gray defended him against Mr. Jackson, oddly enough. She also got on a stage. I don't know if it was at church, but it was a stage and there was a microphone. And she explained away her husband's infidelity. She said there was an enemy attacking her marriage. There was this strange woman coming into her marriage. Wasn't a stranger to your husband because he was calling her. He knew who she was. You didn't know. He knew it wasn't an enemy attacking your marriage. The enemy is within. And she, she says some other crazy shit, just twisting all manner of religious doctrine. Like, I am his wife, and I come from his rib, and rib means rest and brokenness, and I'm not making that shit up. You can Google rest and brokenness. That's a quote. I know where the wife, I know where the woman, the wife comes from the rib. That's in Genesis. I don't go to church on a regular basis, but I know the basics. I know Adam and his rib, and that's how we got Eve, and blah, 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 but I was like, sis, quote me the passage on rest and brokenness. I ain't never heard that one before. Is that biblical, or that's some shit you made up? But we've seen this before. And again, that was the first time he did that shit. He bought a Lambo truck trying to save that marriage and she stayed. And you know what the fuck he did? Turned around less than two years later on video involving his son to talk to his mistress. Have the boy denigrating his mama for not cooking. He on video in the middle of a global pandemic telling some woman he want to fly her to Cabo on a private jet. Talking about he going to make biscuit and beans and what other side she wants to eat. And got a whole wife at home. What Mrs. Jackson don't know, Mr. Jackson ain't done with his shenanigans. He's using this crisis because that's what it is. You get publicly exposed for cheating with multiple women, even if you weren't a relationship expert. It looks bad. We had a president impeached for this shit, but it's the middle of a crisis and he's using it as a marketing opportunity. He can't make a video without talking about his new book. He's doing these bizarre videos. The one I mentioned before about the split screen. He's talking about himself in the third person. He's loving this shit. Everyone's talking about him. Good, bad, or indifferent. He's clearly on some all-press-as-good-press shit. He's using the crisis in this marriage as an opportunity to make more money. That's not the type of man who feels bad about what he's done. and Is going to sit down, act right, and be a better husband. Woman's out here sounding like she's in a cult. And last week I asked, I said, where are her friends? Where's her mama? Where's her sister? Where are her big cousins? She ain't got no sorority she ain't got no college roommates, she ain't got nobody. And somebody pointed out to me and was like, sis, she sounds like she's in a cult. Who you think recruited her into it? Her mama, her sisters, her friends. They might be on that same shit. Or she's alienated them because she's so deep in this, you know, religious chicanery." But Mr. Jackson is out here acting like a graduate from the C.L. Franklin School of Fuckery. Sis, you think what he just did is bad? I promise you, he ain't done. When I was growing up, my auntie used to tell me, a smart woman knows a little bit about a lot of things. Now listen to my auntie. One thing I know a little bit about is niggas and nigga shit. Mr. Jackson ain't no master teacher. That's a nigga. And he ain't done with his niggotry yet. You stand by him through this foolishness? It's about to get real crazy, sis. This is just the tip of the iceberg. We've seen it before. You trying to hold on to a man who wants to fuck other women, evidenced by the fact that he's fucking so many other women. We got exhibit A, B, and C already. It's been a week. He gonna fuck around and do Cosby numbers, have 54 women coming out the woodwork. At least he ain't raping them. I'll give him that. Everybody seems to be of age and consenting. He just a hoe. Somebody tell little sis, can't keep no man that don't want to be cat. And this shit ain't going to end well for you. You can have all the religious fervor. You can pray as much as you want. God can't change people who want to change. You having a whole war room meltdown. Meanwhile, he's marketing books. Sis. Sis. The whole internet is trying to save you from yourself and your narcissistic husband. Those who don't listen must feel. You think you in hell now, sis? Just wait wait till what's next you ain't seen shit yet i know nigga shit and just to clarify when i say nigga shit i'm not talking about all men i'm not even specifically talking about black men you know i'll call anybody a nigga if they doing nigga shit i have called many a white man a nigga on this show everybody can get it i'm equal opportunity i feel so bad for that woman and then folks are clowning her Be like, well, yeah, see why he cheated? Because she's, no, she married. She was cute. Now she don't keep herself together. No wonder he's wandering the streets. If you got married and you're not happy, your person's not doing it for you. They're not keeping themselves together. They're, for whatever reason, you have the option to leave. Cheating and dragging them through the mud and treating them like shit and betraying them and lying to them and all of those things that come along with infidelity. No, no. You have the option to go. You have the option to say, I'm not happy and this is what I need from you. You give the other person an opportunity or a chance to fix the thing that's, that's an issue for you. But just to just treat them the way Mr. Jackson is treating his wife? No. The bonnet, the no brassiere.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. When you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
2: It's not a reason to cheat on somebody. That's not a reason to cheat on your wife. I feel so bad for her. Jesus. In other news, I'm excited to share this interview with you. Last week, I spoke to Sister soldier about many things, but including her latest book, Life After Death, which again, is number one on two New York Times bestsellers list right now. I heard through the grapevine that she sold something like 80 or 90,000 copies in the first week, which I was like, Jesus, that's some big folks. That's their whole book run. And I also, and I also have to tell you this. I rarely get nervous during interviews, but I started this interview with Sister Soldier and we got like a minute through and I had to stop and apologize because I was so flustered and I just had to level with her. And I was like, look, I grew up on you. And I had to tell her that because I was like, otherwise, I can't get through this interview without totally fanning out. So like now that I've said that, now we can have a normal interview. And she was like, thank you. Let's do that. And then we had a great interview. But I was just, I was totally freaked out. Like Sister Soldier was everything to me. And even this interview, actually, you know what? I'll let you hear it. And then I'll see if you had the same takeaways that I did. So ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, please welcome Sister Soldier to Ratchet and Respectable. Good morning. How are you? Is it morning where you are? I don't know where you're you're based these days. Right now I'm in the Middle East and it is nighttime. It's about 9 p.m. What are you doing, seeing, enjoying in the Middle East right now?
3: What I'm doing here is I actually chose this location to do some research and some writing in. Uh, Most of uh, my readers who read my novels know I have a character named Midnight, and Mm -hmm. he comes from this region of the world. And so initially, when I first came over, I was looking to do research. Also, I was looking to finish writing, which became a rewrite of the, the film script for The Coldest Winter Ever. And while I was writing the film script, I had the opportunity to do a book deal for the sequel to The Coldest Winter Ever. So I've been over here working. Congratulations
2: on everything. You're having definitely an amazing week. Two New York Times bestseller list this week. That's amazing.
3: Interesting and adventurous. Yes. To say yes. that.
2: Okay. I'm very usually not nervous about things. I've been a fan of yours for over 20 years. I know you before you were before you were an author, you've always been a writer since you were a teenager. I know that. Um, but I remember you as an activist, like seeing you as a very young girl like 12 or 13, and seeing um, your side ponytail and your baby hairs and your hoop earrings. <laughs> and, your, your soft but powerful voice and the way you commanded attention really left a great impression on me as a young woman. So I don't usually get nervous in interviews, but I'm a wee bit nervous today talking Well,
3: to thank you. you so much for the, <laughs> the nice things you're saying about me of the past. And don't be nervous because anybody who really knows me knows that I am just so regular in the conversation, like... I'm not trying to impress anyone, and I hope no one's trying to impress me. And I hope that we just talk some real talk, you know?
2: Good. Now that I've got that part out the way, I think I'm good. Okay, good. For people who haven't picked up your book yet, what should readers expect from life
3: after death? Readers should expect uh, the voice, the mentality, the soul, the spirit. Of Winter Santiago, that they grew to um love from the coldest winter ever. And obviously, she, like everybody, including the readers, is older than she was in Coldest Winter Ever, which she was 16 uh, to 18 in that storytelling. Uh, in this storytelling, she has served a 15-year sentence. Um a prison sentence. And so she's older. Uh, But a lot of times when somebody has been incarcerated, they feel almost like time stopped, you know? So in life after death, she says she doesn't feel a day over 19. (laughs) And you can hear, you know, her same way of thinking and uh, moving and her same goals uh, and desires and passion. It's been
2: 22 years, definitely since the last book. And over that time, people have created their own ideas of what should happen next with winter. And they're expecting one thing and they may get another thing. What do you say to people who are like, you know, this is not what I signed up for. Like I wanted this kind of book.
3: An author creates characters. And the author is in control of the pen and the storytelling. If people want to hear uh, stories that they want to hear, that they expect and uh, that they enjoy, they should write them. But the fact is, I wrote the character Winter Santiago and Midnight and Lana and Ricky Santiago and Porsche, and Elijah Emmanuel, I've written six novels uh, that grew out of the story of The Coldest Winter Ever. And so I am adding life after death to that storytelling. Love it or not, I'm the author. So it is what it is. It is what it is.
2: Was there pressure to duplicate the success of Coldest Winter Ever? Like when you got the New York Times numbers back? Did you like breathe a sigh of relief or is that not something you think about?
3: I don't think about it at all. When I am writing, I am only trying to fulfill my purpose and to please God. That's it. So I wrote The Coldest Winter Ever as a cautionary tale because when I was young, I was quite uh, frightened of the drug culture in the New York projects. I was frightened um, by the impact of the drugs. I would see uh, a young teenage girl who I looked up to, who I thought was pretty, and wished you know I would grow up to look similar. And then a year later, she would be unrecognizable to me because she was using that heroin. You know, so um, I saw men lose their families uh, to addiction. And uh, when I wrote the coldest one ever, I wrote it as a warning, as a warning. I think that probably where the mix up occurred was that because I am close to the, uh, to the people. I'm close to my people. I'm close to the hood. I wrote it in such a way that it felt like, uh, you know, like 100% authentic. And for some people, uh, it made them think, you know, like I was from that hustling life, or well, I was about that life, but I never was. The reason why the is when it ever started off, with Winter Santiago saying she hates Sister Soldier was so that I could distinguish her voice, her life, her experiences from my own. I didn't want uh, the community to get confused uh, between fiction and nonfiction. And a lot of people did. One day I was parked on 125th Street in Harlem. A guy came up and knocked on my window you know, I, I let the window down and he said, hey, and he talked about how he had served time in prison with my father. The man that he served time with in prison either told him or he believed that that man was Ricky Santiago. Mm-hmm. I didn't interrupt him because he was going on about it quite passionately. And then when he was finished, I said, my father is a janitor who works in a strip mall in the Bronx. I'm from the Bronx, I'm not from Brooklyn. My father was not a hustler. And so that kind of blew him away. So I knew from the beginning that it was important to establish the difference between the main character, Winter, and the super duper minor character, Sister Soldier. And I thought that that was a metaphor for real life anyway because the popular people uh are like pop culture they're like mainstream and then the activist person is like uh somebody you know who either gets ignored uh who aggravates people because she reminds them of what we all uh should be responsible for they're two different two different things Winter santiago and socha i take it as a compliment that people are so aggressive about the coldest winter ever it means that i really wrote that story good <laughs> because now people are saying she didn't write it in one side it's hilarious on the other side i I feel sorry for anybody who says that because I don't know, it sounds like uh sounds like an, an attack of jealousy or envy, but I wrote the coldest whenever, ever, and then I wrote Midnight Against the Love Story, and then I wrote A Deeper Love Inside, and then I wrote Midnight in the Meaning of Love. And then, and then <laughs> I wrote A Moment of Silence, Midnight Three. And now I have written life after death. And they've all come from my soul, from my pen, from my imagination, from my mind, from my heart. And I dare anybody to prove me wrong.
2: I imagine that for the last 20 years, people have been people, people, the public, your publisher, have been pushing you to do a sequel to Coldest Winter Ever. And clearly you've resisted because we're not getting one until you were ready to do it, or the story was ready to do it. Um, You can tell me which one. But what I'm really interested in is your ability and your comfort with saying no because it's something that a lot of women struggle with. And I think there's other writers who would have thought, like, I've got this best-selling book. I've got to do a sequel immediately. Everyone's pressuring me. This is what people want from me. And you were like, no, you're going to get it when you get it, when the story is ready to be told. And I'll tell you some other stories in the meantime.
3: Well, I tell you, uh, there are different components that make up a woman and different components that make up a man. I think the first the first thing that's important is faith, right? What you believe. Once you uh, decide that you are a believer, you humble yourself before God. And once you humble yourself before God in prayer, um, you put everything, everything gets put in the right order. Why should I be pleasing you, I should be pleasing God? Why should I be pleasing the public? Or why should I be pleasing the politics? The reason why I was able to be uh, such the kind of activist that I was and am is because I knew that the people in power are not God. So now, if you mess up the faith thing, meaning you're confused, you can't figure out what you believe, you don't believe in anything, or you consider yourself one who neither believes or disbelieves, any of those kind of murky uh, categories, you're already admitting that you don't know who you're supposed to please. So. I believe that there is one maker of all souls and that's who I am supposed to please. So I don't have to worry about the noise. I don't have to worry about what anybody else expects or what anybody else wants. I just have to stay on my path and my path in novels started with the coldest winter ever, and me wanting to send a warning to the world about the insidious impact of narcotics on our people.
2: You have a very peaceful scribe. Like, you're not easily shifted, you're not easily um, rattled, it seems. Like, you're very um, secure in your sense of self have you always been that way
3: i think so i think this is just how god made me <clears throat> um i that's what i really believe i think um when we're really young we uh give thanks uh in all of the wrong places you know uh i may have thought well you know i'm smart because i read these books or so, uh, you know i'm in the special class uh, with the advanced kids, uh, because I'm smart and because I study. I really think, uh, ultimately the first, uh, thanks and the first, uh, appreciation and gratitude and all of that goes to, to, uh, to God, uh, to Allah. Unlike an author, God writes the story of each of our lives. So imagine you're an author. You're just trying to get your little cast of characters straight. (laughs) You can't even imagine the mind of God. You can't even imagine the soul of God. How could you? How can you imagine uh, a power so awesome to be able to write our destiny of each person to be able to speak into the soul of each person, billions of people and to make each person feel that they have a private relationship with you. You know, that's what I consider awesome. So if you look at, if you go back and read my books, starting with the coldest winter ever, each book is like a prayer. Each one. It's almost like the author is begging you to see the truth woven into the pages, begging you, praying, praying for you each time. So start, and that's starting with the coldest winter ever, but you know, I can write a book and maybe a million people will buy it. Thankfully, I'm grateful for that, but maybe 900 Thousand of them won't even get the point. Or maybe they will, but 30 years later. I can't even be mad at that because that's how it is. Whenever you are a person trying to deliver a message of truth, it's not popular because, in order for people to embrace it, they have to learn, grow, and change. And most people don't like change. Most people just want to stay the same. And that's why you can hear a chorus of readers 22 years later wanting the same story. I'm not going to give you the same story. I'm not going to give you the coldest one ever remixed, but I'm going to give you Winter Santiago. And I'm going to give you Ricky Santiago after they've been through some things. Now, to me, People who don't understand that are very naive because we all have been through some things after we have lived more than twenty-one years, haven't we? Imagine going through everything that you've gone to through personally and not changing. Whoa. <laughs> When you put it like that, <laughs> <laughs> imagine that, you know, do you think your message has been received from your books? Uh, I think uh, it has by many people. And like I said, there's not only one message I write. My storytelling is in layers. I call it multi-dimensional storytelling. So maybe you got one message and you didn't get the other one. Uh, maybe something resonated with you and something else didn't. You just left that alone. And guess what? It's all good. I don't mind what jewel you pluck from those pages. I'm just praying that you pluck at least one. In announcing this new book, you
2: talked about taking a moment of silence to write this book. And it's also the title of a previous novel that you wrote. Can you talk to me? About the importance of as a woman, especially, of sitting still, I think in many ways you are a testament to doing the work, letting the work speak for itself, because like we see you when, when you have a book to drop or when you have a project or when you want us to see you, but otherwise like you're not you know one of those people that's on social media all the time or that's um, you know, to be seen, to be heard, just talking, to be talking, you're very comfortable in silence.
3: I think silence is a luxury, right because um the way the country is set up, the way the United States is set up, and not only the United States, but that's where I'm from, and that's where I was born, and that's where I live, uh, everybody has to work. And um, most people have, you know, working class or low middle class jobs, employment. And don't even have the time for silence or don't even have the time to sit still. There are not many jobs that will pay you to sit still or to be silent. So I recognize that silence is a luxury in the American lifestyle. I don't take it lightly. I'm very, very grateful to be an author, because it is the kind of profession where you get to enjoy the luxury of silence. And inside of that silence is your soul and your thoughts and your imaginings. So I actually said I was taking a moment of silence at the end of 2015. And in the beginning of the book, A Moment of Silence, Silence, Midnight Three, I had a poem. I always have an opening poem uh, before the storytelling starts. And it called for each of us to take a moment of silence, to self-reflect. And so I took it seriously. I wrote it because I believed it. And um, I felt it. And I felt it was necessary. I felt it was necessary, not only for me, but for everybody. I thought it was uh, necessary for individuals and for the collective, I thought it was necessary for the cities, the states, and for the country. Um, so I actually did it because I thought it was necessary and um what it did for me is uh it's just uh, a cleanser. I guess that's a a good way to put it, a clarifier, um a straightener. That's what being silent and being able to sit still does. It puts your thoughts in the right order. So instead of you just reacting to stimulus, you know, or to a stimulant, uh, or reacting to your job and your fifth cup of coffee, <laughs> you know, and caffeine is racing around your blood or sugar or whatever it is, sitting still and kind of. Humbling yourself and, and uh, staying quiet, I think is important. I think I went on record uh, quite a while back as saying that I think taking multiple pictures of yourself, uh, being overly fascinated with yourself, being in love and enamored with yourself. I think that is a form of mental illness. When the stick came out, where people were putting their cell phones on the end of the stick Mm -hmm. and walking around filming themselves, talking to themselves, uh, taking several photographs of themselves, uh, I thought that that was extreme. And, you know, I've always had, you know, a very good cell phone to. Be able to conduct business with, but I have never taken one selfie. I have never ever pointed the camera of my cell phone at myself and clicked it. Now, I have nieces, young women, who back then were even younger. I could go into my niece's bedroom, she'd have no less than 200 photos of herself on the wall. I thought this was a problem. But if you mention it to people, they think you're the problem because it's popular. It's what everybody's doing. I come from an era where I was in love with the idea of privacy. You know, not having to tell everybody uh, my business or my mother's business or my father's business or whatever have you. And now, you know, people go on Facebook and, you know, they'll give birth on Facebook.
2: Literally, literally. I've seen it. Yes.
3: People commit suicide on Facebook. Yeah. You know, it's uh, for me, it's very unsettling. So there are people who, as a component of this mental illness, cannot even be happy unless somebody is watching them do what they're doing. This is a huge problem because when you're by yourself in a room, there should be some happiness in your soul. And if there isn't, the more stuff you need to bring into that room in order to get happy, the more trouble you're in. So, Within my moment of silence, I just uh, confirmed some of the things I already thought. Thought some new things as well. uh, Wrote a whole lot of different things as well. um, Got better in making my prayers. Read a lot of books. uh, Saw a lot of films, very unique kind of films. And... uh, you know, was quite content, quite grateful.
2: We hear you enough for for you, obviously. You set your boundaries where you do. Um, But I miss your voice. I miss you being a very present, um, very vocal public figure. And I think your voice is as necessary now, if not even more so than it was then. Is there ever a chance that you would return back to being a, a very public activist?
3: I think things happen in a certain way uh, that they're supposed to happen. I didn't plan, oh, you know, I'm going to be this powerful activist. It's kind of like uh, I was just living my life doing what I thought my purpose was. And then the media encountered me, you know, Mm -hmm. they 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 shine the spotlight on me. I really was quite surprised. I mean, even some of the biggest uh, media that I've had being on the cover of Newsweek and being in the centerfold of time and Jet and Ebony and Rolling Stone and, you know, all of it was quite shocking to me, you know, (laughs) really it was. (laughs) So I can't even tell you, oh, I had this dope publicist and she got me in all the magazines things <laughs> because that's not even how it happened. I mean, it was kind of like I was just doing what I do, organizing young people, doing programs, and just doing what I do. And the media discovered me. And when they did, they blew it way, way, way out of proportion. So the kind of interesting thing that happened there was when the camera came on and the microphone clicked on. I kept saying the things I was already saying in my community. I kept doing the things I was already doing in my community. And that's kind of what shocked the world. Because people have a camera face. You know, people have a media mug. You know, people have a polite speech or a politically correct thing that they do. Uh, when the camera comes on, for some people, the camera is an intoxicator. for others, the camera is an intimidator. But you know, when I was young, I saw films of Malcolm X. I thought he was the most beautiful man I ever saw, and the most beautiful man in the world, and he wasn't even he wasn't even alive. These were films that I saw from archives when I was a young young lady. And I just told myself when I saw those films, if you ever get the chance to speak on the microphone or to be in front of the camera, you better say a mighty true word like this man. This man is glowing on the films. He's not even present in the world as we know it anymore he's glowing on the films he's speaking truth that's making me get the chills and I'm a young girl in the library watching it in the basement where they have the films archived so yeah I did promise myself you know there have been certain things that I've promised myself when I was growing up and that was one of the things I'm not going to get on the microphone and be a fool. I'm not going to get on the camera and be a clown. I was not born to entertain the world. What I want to be is a truth teller.
2: You realize that the same way that you looked at Malcolm X, and you saw those videos as a young woman is very much the same way that so many young women looked at you.
3: Eddie Murphy and his, uh, movie, Coming to America. (laughs) He had that word that I think was so on point or apropos. He had that word, that term, soul glow. So when you see somebody and they're glowing, you're seeing the light of God from their soul coming through their eyes and through the pores of their skin. And that's what it is. Now, Here's another way to look at it. If you see me or you saw me and you thought I was glowing, my only problem with that means that I'm standing out for simply doing what I'm supposed to do. So that means if I'm standing out, it's only because there are millions of people not doing what they are supposed to do. So if you see one person glowing, it means that you also should be glowing. But the reason why you're not glowing is because you're not fulfilling the purpose of your soul. And when you do, you will glow too. Thank you. You're welcome.
2: I have two more questions for you. Mm-hmm. You mentioned at the top of this interview that there was a screenplay mm-hmm. for Coldest Winter Ever. Yes. People have been asking for that film. You know, because they ask
3: you. Right. Is it going to happen? I believe that it is. Uh, I just believe that the film version of the Coldest Winter Ever is really like the story of my whole life. It will happen when it's supposed to happen. It's really out of my hands. You know, I wrote the book, I wrote the screenplay. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, that that was that was in my hands. Making a movie is a team thing. Uh, writing a book is an individual thing. No one interferes when I'm writing a book. No one adds one word to the story or my pages or anything. But when it comes to a film, you have so many people sitting around the table. You have contracts as As a book. Mm -hmm. You know, you have investors, you have producers, you just have so much going on. And to get that synergy uh, to the point where you are ready to now go into production is not an easy task because there's so many people at the table. And it's also not an easy task because I don't want to be treated customarily. Like, this, oh, this is Hollywood. This is how we do it. And I'm like, no, I'm soldier. This is how I do it.
2: We got to find a middle ground.
3: A middle ground.
2: I know that you handpicked Nia Long to do the audio for Life After Death. Who would you want to handpick to play Winter Santiago?
3: I always say Winter Santiago will be a newcomer. I think she has to be. I think uh, when an actor plays so many different roles so and different, television show films uh, they are fulfilling their profession and you know and I'm sure they're very excited about that but there is something uh, that doesn't happen on film with that person who has been on film and in front of the camera so many times I want when people see went to Santiago I want a jolt of lightning to shoot through your body. And I don't think I can get that if I give you the same old thing. So Winter Santiago and Midnight will both be newcomers if I have it my way. And Lana Santiago and Ricky Santiago, they'll be A-listers. They'll be stars that, you know, Make people, you know, feel like, yep, this is it. That's familiar. (laughs) That's right. That's my my man. That's, you know, that's my girl. You know, that kind of thing. But Winter and Midnight, uh, I think they need to be fresh.
2: That's my last question. Is there anything that you want people to know about you or your work that I haven't asked you about that you'd like to share?
3: My books are to be read by each individual soul individually, and you just need to experience it and let it happen to you. But I will never, ever, ever put out a book, even though people say never, say never. That's not at the top of my excellence. I will never, ever do it. I will never, ever give the public a book that they can consider filler or just a paycheck for soldier. No, never. I'm telling you, when I give you life after death, I'm giving you excellence and you need only to discover it for yourself. Thank you, Sister Soldier. Thank you so much. Have an awesome evening. You too. All right, bye bye. Peace.
2: So, after I did this interview with her, I wrote about it on Facebook and I was like, yo. What I appreciate so much about her is I can be very excitable. I, I pulled it together better than I was. But if you're listening to the interview, you can still hear like I'm excited and, and speaking to her. But she's so calm and so even. And I appreciate the way that she speaks is very measured and that she doesn't adjust to my pace. She speaks in a way that is so, to, to me, so self-assured like I'm still in a phase of life where I'm just sort of like spinning around, like sometimes I can be very much like a little top. I'm just I'm just spinning, 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 spinning. I have some sense of direction, but I'm spinning to get there, but she just she strikes me as someone who's well- rooted, who isn't spinning, and I very much admire that trait in her. Thank you, Sister Soldier, for coming to visit Ratchet and Respectable. I hope that this film win. This film, the coldest winter ever, makes it to theaters. But whenever this film comes out, I hope we can have her back on the show to talk about what will surely be a moment, capital M. So that is this week's episode of Ratchet and Respectable. I also just restocked the website with Don't Waste Your Pretty merch. So if you don't have a Don't Waste Your Pretty hoodie, they're still available in most sizes. So if you haven't picked up your hoodie or your red or pink Don't Waste Your Pretty mug. Or your second edition of Don't Waste Your Pretty. Which is still re-airing on TV1. That's one. one of the reasons I love it being on TV1. They're going to re-air that thing as long as y'all keep watching it. If y'all keep watching it, they're just going to play it every week for, from here till eternity. If you need some ratchet and respectable in your life between now and next week's episode, you can follow me on social media at Demetria L. Lucas. And you can also pick up that merchandise at DemetriaLLucas.com. That's everything. We'll talk next week. Okay. Bye.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Angie.